on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you are listening, it is America's Talk radio show about opera. It is Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, this week, the Australian Open kicks off, and in the early rounds, a lot of Australian qualifiers will be eliminated. The OBS brings back its brutal TKO segment and offers you an all-Australian matchup. Plus, two-minute drill, Mozart's birthday is coming up, and his gayest opera is getting funding. If you're watching on TDO, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get the full show. Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, smash that plus sign. And you can even just ask Alexa to play Opera Box Score if that doesn't freak you out, which it would me. <laughs> Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Send us a voice memo if you want to get your voice on this show. You do that, you get an OBS beer coaster, and you get an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. So much sports happening at this time of year. I love it. Oliver, we're going to go straight to you and only you. Give us 30 (laughs) seconds on Djokovic and what is going on in Australia. I mean, this is the most overreported story in tennis history. I mean, I've heard it on every news outlet, uh, even NPR, talking about this scandal of Djokovic entering the country. Australia unvaccinated with a medical exemption from the tournament, but the country not, the immigration's not accepting his exemption. So quarantining him or um, locking him basically up in his hotel room away from his team. And the court eventually ruled that he will be deported. So he does not get a chance to compete in this year's tournament and maybe not come back for three years. I don't know how this is going to result in but he always wins the Australian Open. He won it mm. nine times already. Yeah, this is the weirdest tournament because like nobody really is ready to play the Australian Open. It's like too early in the season, and he somehow always is just in such good form. And so he clearly would have won <laughs> this year had he yeah. been able to compete, and he would have become what some people think the greatest of all time because he would have achieved twenty-one Grand Slams. Right now, he's in a tie with Rafael Nadal yeah. and. Uh, Roger Federer. So this would have been the tournament where he broke the tie. Wow! No Tempete today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was extremely succinct. Thank you for bringing us up to speed. We are going to get right to it. Let us talk some opera. TKO on the OBS. So everybody knows how much I love tennis. And to me, it's the biggest event for the week of January 16th, January 17th. I know there's some football stuff coming up soon, uh, but right now it's all about tennis. And there's going to be Olympics coming up in less than a month now. It's true. Um, So the Australian Open, like many other Grand Slams, uh, the host country always ends up with a lot of qualifiers coming through in the early rounds. And so we're going to see a bunch of Australians knocking each other out uh in the in the first and second <laughs> rounds uh so we thought why not do an all australian tko and obviously when you think australian singer the first place your mind goes to is joan sutherland and or if you're old be- school it's nelly melba but <laughs> <laughs> i mean let's be real joan sutherland is the serena williams of opera and, well, uh, I think she's more the Djokovic because she's not participating in this in this round. <laughs> she's so, not an anti-vaxxer. How dare you? <laughs> there's no reason for us to pit Joan Sutherland against any other of her compatriots. I think the next name that comes to mind, besides Nellie Melba, uh, would be Danielle Denise. And, you know, mm. based on her charisma and her sort of groundbreaking career, um, I think she would go pretty far. Also in a tournament. So wait a second. Have... Don't forget Kiri Tick. Actually, never mind. Yes. Uh, <laughs> different country. Nice try. So um, we decided between Matt and I that we were going to go with two singers. One who I think you should know, and one who is up and coming and probably will be on everybody's lips very soon. Uh, I'll start off by uh, introducing Yvonne Kenny, 
uh, one of my favorite actually recitalists, a really fantastic uh, song interpreter of song. But uh, Yvonne Kenny became an overnight star in 1975 when she sang uh, on four days notice the title role of Rosmonda Dingliterra, opera everybody knows <laughs> by Donizetti. <laughs> She sang that. Whenever I'm in the shower, I go directly to an aria from the from whatever it was you just said. You know what that is? That's Joan Sutherland repertoire. Yeah, exactly. It's it's Renee Fleming repertoire too. Um, So she sang this role in four days' notice, and it shot her to international stardom as Rosamund Dingletera would. And she went on to sing many roles, uh, especially in the Handelian repertoire and Mozartian repertoire. Uh, She also. Eventually, essayed the role of Melisande and Pelias and Melisande and Manon uh, and other French roles like Leila and Pearlfishes and Michaela. Um, and then later on in her career, she became a noted Marshallin. And there's a fantastic set of her singing the Marshallin from English National Opera in the English translation. And that was actually one of my first recordings mm. of Marshallin because I, I, it was hard for me to get into Strauss. I've always had a very small brain, and now I, I'm a full-on <laughs> Strauss person. But early on, I actually needed to hear it in English to figure out what the heck is going on in this opera. Uh, but as I said, she is a fantastic recitalist. You can find some of her recitals from Wigmore Hall. Um, beautiful voice, clearly meant to sing Mozart for its intonation and for its lean vibrato and for its clear enunciation of text. And later on in her career, the voice took on an edge and became more uh, silvery and was able to essay these more dramatic roles for the type of singer she is, such as the Marshallin. So that is in one corner of the TKO, yes. Yes. the five-round TKO. So Matt, who Yvonne is in your Kenny. corner? Yvonne Kenny is going to be going up against Nicole Carr, or Nicole mm. Carr, probably. Uh, she's an up-and-coming ah. Australian <laughs> lyric soprano, as, uh, as Oliver said. Uh, she really has been making a number of notable debuts over the last 10 to 15 years. I think she's been active in her career for maybe 13 years at this point. Her U.S. debut was in the role of the Contessa. Her Met debut was in the role of Mimi. So a little bit juicier of a voice we're talking about. More mm. of like a Kiri Takanoa, Renee Fleming type of Mozart singer than uh, than a Handelian. Uh, she actually returned to the Met in 2020. You heard that right, not a mistake. Uh, to sing a couple, to sing some performances of Fiordaligi just before everything was shut down for COVID. She's mm. been hailed for her warm tone, her sensitive singing, her winning stage presence uh, in roles like Mimi, Marguerite, and Faust, Ellen Orford, and Peter Grimes, Tatiana, Dona Elvira, and of course Fiordaligi. Uh, her biggest credit to date probably is the winner of the Neue Stimmen competition in uh, 2013, the German singing contest, what, uh, where she shared the winning title with Nadine Sierra. So that is the yeah. kind of generation of singers that we're talking about here. And she's famously married to Etienne Dupuis, the baritone, and they appear together in the Met at Home Gala. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, she, and they were supposed to appear together uh, in Santa Fe Opera's production of um, Eugene Onegin, uh, but they couldn't get a visa. And so um, Lucas Meacham replaced Etienne Dupuis and Sarah Jubik-Kayak replaced Nicole Carr in that production that I saw. Shout out to Santa Fe Opera. So wait, they, they fell the same fate as Djokovic? Were they then like expelled from the country? <laughs> they didn't have visa? They're so not allowed back in the country. Stop Djokovic and around, George. Weston so, Williams is going to be our judge for these sure five is. rounds. And just from the um, repertoire that these singers cover, it's very clear to see where Nicole Carr is going as a singer. And Yvonne Kenny, uh, you know, focusing a, a lot on Handel and Mozart. We already from the bat can tell you that their voices are are not much alike, mm. uh, but the crossover role uh, is Fiordaligi, and that's interesting to me because Fiordaligi can be sung by a voice that's you know more creamy, like a Kiritakanoa, but also has been essayed by singers like Edita Gurua, who has a much you know more uh, austere, for lack of better high word. and higher lying too. Yeah, exactly. So, um. I just want to say really quickly about, we've decided to go with Per Pietà, uh, the second aria of Fjordelige's second act aria, uh, which to me is Mozart at his most intimate and profound. I mean, this opera has a lot of flashy singing in it. 
and Fiorelliti's first aria, Come Scoglio, is a pseudo opera seria rage aria, whereas Per Pietà achieves something much more authentically Mozartian for this era of Mozart's career. It's his, almost at the end of his career, and he discovered this, or he sort of pioneered this way of creating, you know, operatic singing that speaks to the audience at, at in their time and mm. uses the audience's knowledge of opera seria uh, to inform the drama, but also uses the, the, uh, the tropes and rhetoric of comic operas to make the audience really understand what's happening and to make these characters relatable. And Fiordaligi is the coldest ice biatch uh, in all of Mozart operas, probably <laughs> colder than Vitalia or the Queen mm. of the Night, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, but she eventually breaks down and becomes this person who uh, becomes very human. And we see that she's not perfect. And this is the aria where she just kind of reveals the shame she has for even being tempted, just the, the thought of being tempted to, to uh, be unfaithful to Guglielmo. Um, and uh, yeah, she's really, really hard on herself. And this is like a nine-minute aria. <laughs> in the middle just... of a lot of hijinks. There's a lot of zaniness yeah. in this opera. There's a lot right. of... As act, you might expect from Mozart. Acting yeah. out in this opera. And this is just spotlight in the middle of the stage while you look at a locket and consider your life and consider your choices. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is that like, you even know that the original Fiorelligi, I forget her name, Adriana del Ferrarese or something like that. Ferrarese was, da Bene. There you go. Was a singer that Mozart didn't particularly like. Uh, <laughs> and she had a weird tick of um, moving her chin up and down when yeah. she changed registers. So Come Scoglio famously has these gigantic leaps uh, that probably made her look like a chicken or something like that while she was singing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it really explored her uh, chest voice. Um, but this aria barely goes above the staff. I mean, it just goes lower and lower and lower. And it sort of is a metaphor for how deeply Fiorelligi is looking at herself and, and really like just the, the shame she feels for not being the person that she says she is. Um, so I... I love this piece. I mean, I've been listening to this opera since I was a gay 15-year-old. And um, I've always, the first time I heard it, I just didn't even know what I was listening to. I just was really touched by what is this aria. And I was like, of course, really into like the coloratura and the high notes and the trills. Like, okay, what is this? It's, why is this touching me so weirdly? And uh, yeah, I think now that I've listened to this opera probably a thousand times, if I've listened to it once, I really know that this moment in the opera is very difficult for the singer. It's so exposed and it really just, you have to bury your soul. And it's basically mm. acapella too. Uh, I mean, you get this little woodwind band that plays and comments on the action, but uh, there's not a lot of orchestration in this. So it's, it's just the horns that you're duetting yeah. with for, well, for much yeah. of the slow section. Well, let's get right down to it. So we got five rounds. I want a nice clean fight. I want, this tight. I want 30 second commentary from each of you. We've got clips as well. Weston is our judge. Weston, you're going to give a, a, a winner after each round, or are you going to withhold judgment until the whole I think I'll withhold until the very end, uh, I think. That's probably the way right. to go. I always leave wanting more. Okay, so who's going close to the vest. first? So Matt's going to set up each round for us. Yes, so talking about round one. Round one is the recitative entry into this aria. Uh, this is where she has just been left by Ferrando, who has been trying to seduce her in disguise. And she feels these pangs. Uh, and so this is a bit of a, um, a coming to terms with the feelings that are palpitating inside her breast, just like Dorabella did in, in her duet that comes uh, shortly before this. Um, and what I really like about the way Nicole Carr sings this recitative is the way that it she keeps the propulsion moving forward as though Fiordaligi is horrified but can't stop like turning the pages of this book to see mm. what she's going to find next as though she's not even in control of her own life and her own feelings. And so we'll hear these clips back to back. And I will just say that the Nicole Carr performance is live and not very well mic'd. 
whereas the Yvonne Kenny performance, I think, is coming from a studio recording and also using. I was I was able to so. find a better audio quality of the Nicole Carr performance, okay. but it is live. So yes, clearly Nicole Carr has a glamorous tone quality. I mean, if it was just about tone, she would win hands down. But to me, I hear the intelligence of Yvonne Kenny and her experience of having done lots of Handel, lots of Mozart. She really knows how to do recit. She knows how to give space. She knows how to let the chords dictate the next, you know, mood. Uh, I feel like Nicole Carr just sort of like sang through it. And it was very exciting because the voice is exciting, but I didn't hear a lot of difference in all of the phrases. Mm. Interesting. What's your rebuttal, Matt? Yvonne Kenny has a a really interesting tone and is such an intelligent singer, but I think that the 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 uh, you lose the propulsion going into the aria. I really I I feel like you get caught a little bit flat-footed in some mm. of those long breaks. Mm-hmm. All right, round 2, Matt. So round two is the main theme of this aria, which is in the form of a rondo. It comes back a couple times. Uh, and this is the titular per pieta, uh, where it is just a plea. She is opening her heart, pouring out her soul, asking for forgiveness for the misdeed of even having thoughts of another lover. And this is where you really can uh, can let that can it's not that you can let your voice go but you have to breathe such life into these long phrases that really go lower and lower as Oliver said earlier uh and, and to be able to keep that frisson going throughout the line and throughout the voice and to keep the voice speaking through those whole lines is what what makes a great Mozartian and I think that it's mm. undeniable that Nicole Carr has the bones of a great Mozartian in her in this voice well let's hear Yvonne Kenny first this time. And I feel like you get a clearer understanding of what the line 
actually is because Yvonne Kenny pays more attention to <laughs> rhythm and pitch. And I think her voice also, even though it's not as full as Nicole Carr's, you don't lose sound as you go down. Round three is the B section of this aria where uh where Fiordaligi comes to terms with the uh the the dishonor that she is feeling, the shame that is within her heart. Uh it it is really marked by a lot more of those leaps that we were talking about that are really typical of the role of Fiordaligi having to <laughs> make bridges from the very lowest area of the voice to not the highest area of the voice, but like the upper middle, which if anything is more difficult. Uh and the 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 phrases here there there's a lot more rhythmic propulsion through the dotted rhythms a lot more agitation uh and despite this you have to really make the voice speak evenly throughout the entire range so that you don't lose any of it well i think we should hear nicole carr sing first and i will just since you brought up the idea of the rhythm uh i do think that kenny once again is more exact uh, and also, I will say that we get more language from Yvonne Kenny in this section. <laughs>
to come out of those long stretches uh, uh, of music with the same kind of energy and really and not lose any momentum and to really still have that same beautiful tone throughout the you know throughout your range throughout the the role it, it it's a lot it it's exciting i don't know what to tell you <laughs> so we'll start with Yvonne kenny first on this round but i'm gonna say it, in a way this battle comes down to how you like your mozart do you like your mozart <laughs> like blood and guts informed by the romantic yes. period or do you prefer to hear your Mozart closer to what the audience might have heard with a singer that is staying within the confines of what was understood as bel canto at the time? Now, granted, it's German bel canto. It's more of an instrumental bel canto. But Ivan Kenny, to me here, in this more virtuosic section of the aria, is keeping it as if she were singing Bach. <laughs> as we go into uh, the final round here, I would like to remind both of my contestants that you can always bribe me. But uh, if you don't want to, I guess we can just go ahead, Matt. Into the finale, the grand finale. And if, if ever there were a cruel twist of fate to an aria, it's having to come out of seven and a half minutes of nonstop, very exposed singing and nail these final passages. Yikes. The work... The, the passage work gets more and more floral. It is full of descending scales, which are really, which can really be a booby trap for singers, especially when you're getting tired. Because descending the, scales are the hardest. <laughs> the tendency is to overshoot them and then kind of try to make up for the extra space that you have left at the bottom. And so to be able to sing a descending scale that really stays in tune from the top note to the bottom is the mark of good vocal technique. And that's not, that's not all. We're, you know, it's full on mattress sale here. On top of that, <laughs> the cadential passages of this aria are two long trills that launch into a high note, into another descending scale that arpeggiates all the way back up to the top. Then you have to launch directly from that into one more very, very long trill and hopefully not run out of breath in terms uh, before the orchestra ritornello comes through. So I'm going to say that the only person I've ever heard execute this thing like perfect 10 is Cecilia Bartoli, and she does it on one breath. Everybody else, the great singers, the great, great singers have a hard time with this. And there's always some kind of awkward something, weird breath, the wrong place. Descending scale wasn't exactly on. The trill didn't happen. It's just one of those impossible things that's so 
I don't know what Mozart was thinking to, to put this as the ending of this aria. But I will say that Yvonne Kenny has a real trill. And Nicole Carr, if you're listening, I love you. I think your voice is gorgeous. Um, I'm not sure if these are always trills. This is no, just you're, you're fast not, vibrato. You're not, going to the, you're, you're not going to the show to hear the trills from Nicole Carr. <laughs> but what you are going to hear is this beautiful, lush, and creamy tone that really caresses these phrases, even though they are virtuosic and difficult. She kind of makes them sound laid, not laid back, but it doesn't sound like she is huffing and puffing to get to the finish line. And that kind of ease under pressure is the grace that we expect from our Mozartian heroines. arguments five bloodletting rounds are in the books i mean it's not even fair to excerpt these five segments even though they're all great demonstrations of what these singers can do to hear the whole aria to hear how you shape the whole thing how you make you know little variations how you change the phrasing is really what the skill of the mozartian is mm. uh, so it's sort of not fair to pull these out like this once again, I think Yvonne Kenny has put in the time. She knows this rep. She's made her, her living on doing Mozart. And she shows here, you know, the wise elderman, elder statesman of Mozart singing. Uh, and very stylish, too. I mean, like for somebody whose career started in the 70s, she is mm -hmm. singing in a way that feels very of the moment for what we understand of Mozart's style. Nicole Carr is a young up-and-comer that you should be betting on if you care about what happens to opera in the future. She's got a <laughs> voice for days. She is great on stage. She really conveys a lot of pathos in this aria. Uh, you don't just get vocal technique listening to this. I really do feel like the character comes through. Uh, and the vocalism remains really buoyant and even throughout the whole aria, which is really uh, an achievement in and of itself in a role like Fiordaligi. But I think that Mozart is not long for her. I'm just going to put that out there. She's going to be leaving this repertoire any minute now. That's not incorrect. <laughs> Moving into a different weight class. Okay, I get it. Weston, over to you. How are you going to pick a winner? Talk us through your decision. Well, I think it's very interesting because like, uh, like Oliver said at the very beginning, uh, these are two very different voices. 
Um, you very much have uh, just entirely different kinds of voice. I, I agree. I think uh, Nicole Carr is going to be packing up and heading to some heavier roles tomorrow. The kind of stuff that I would listen to <laughs> um, a little bit later, uh, not not to the far future. Uh, however, I do think, uh, you know, Kenny has that certain quality which really like fits the Mozart a little bit better. But I think that might be more the fault of like putting, you know, a, a singer in a repertoire that is not their ideal way to hear them. Um, and I do think despite all of that, I think Nicole Carr has that tone and just like a little bit more excitement to me that really kind of puts her over the edge. So I think and, and I, I want to give it to both of them. Um, because I love both of you. I love both of my uh, Australian uh, singers I've never met. Um, but I do think I'm going to have to give it just by a hair to Nicole Carr. Mm, wow. wow. Shame. Shame. That's how can we, we put this an upset. That is an, up- an upset. <laughs> <laughs> how, can, how can we put this podcast on the air? They're going to think that we don't know about Mozart. Uh, who's Mozart? I've never heard of him. <laughs> During his birthday, birthday almost. Month. Oh no! I'm so sorry, Wolfie. Every time. I'm I'm just thinking about Philip Glass's birthday in another week, so you know that's where my head's at. And and then of uh, of course when they make it to the next round, they they get crushed by um, Sutherland and or <laughs> noted Fjordalija Jones Sutherland. <laughs> I, I I should I should have just said, and the winner is Joan Sutherland. Oh yes. <laughs> Sutherland's Fjordaligi. Did she ever sing any Fjordaligi? Is there a recording I, somewhere? Not I that I have ever so. heard. Donana, no. yes. Queen of the yeah. Night, yeah. But that's that's really... Yeah. Mozart was not really her uh, bag of tricks. No. 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 Fantastic to have the uh, TKO segment back on the show. Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings going head-to-head. Weston Williams on the call. We're going to talk some uh, sports <laughs> super quick. Before we get into the two-minute drill, losses abounding for the OBS family this week. First of all, for those of you who do listen on TDO, uh, Dallas Cowboys out of the playoffs. All that mm-hmm. money, all that mm-hmm. money, all those resources, and for what? For not. They could have gone directly to this podcast the whole time. Could have. <laughs> Matt, we would have done much better in football. Steelers also out of this is what playoffs. happens when you give yes. tobias wright some attention you you have to give him props two weeks in a row back to being enemy of the show it's official hereby declared enemy of the show and weston's alabama tide loses the national championship yeah turns out it was low tide the whole time dude i told you georgia was for real i told you <laughs> And did you I think Georgia is a figment of all of our collective imaginations, and no. you can't convince me otherwise. Georgia's real. Take it from this Wolverine fan. Georgia is real. All right, two-minute drill. That is also real, and it's happening right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Cancellations in the wake of the Omicron variant continued to pile up over the last week, with performances closing at Teatro Reggio di Parma, Icelandic Opera, Deutsche Oper Berlin, La Monet in Brussels, Canadian Opera Company, Irish National Opera, and Toledo Opera, Toledo, Ohio. Even Salzburg <laughs> Mozart Week was canceled less than two weeks before the composer's birthday, but it's okay because he would be really embarrassed to think that Nicole Carr <laughs> would be chosen over Ivan Kenny. <laughs> rolling in his grave. But there might be a glimmer of hope on the horizon as some companies announced their upcoming openings. Oper Leipzig and Semper Oper Dresden will open this week, and Opera Atelier will, has announced that it will return to live performances this week. That's for you, Oliver, as we celebrate Nicole Carr never coming on this show. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian Opera Company has announced a collaborative approach to land acknowledgments, commissioning Indigenous artists to co-create a visual work and an artist statement together with a COC staff member. General Director Perrin Leach said... We hope that when people take in our programming, whether that's in person or online, they're also able to experience land acknowledgement in a new way, something that engages their senses, allows them to reflect on their own learnings and knowledge, and go away wanting to know more. Soprano Tracy Cox will start in Matt Bowler's operatic adaptation of the Neil Labute play, Fat Pig. 
When asked, why would Cox, a self-identified fat person and activist, would want to sing in an opera with such a startling title, she said, quote, because this project endeavors to tell one of the stories of the fat experience, a subject that has never been before approached in opera. This piece tells the story of a fat woman who falls in love with a man in a normative body and the tragedy that follows when the misogyny and fatmesia of the man's friends and colleagues prove too much for them to overcome. Fat Pig opens at Victory Hall Opera in Virginia later this month. In honor of Marian Anderson's 125th birthday next month, PBS will present the second ever showing of Marian Anderson, The Whole World in Her Hands. The doc, directed by Emmy Award winner Rita Coburn, explores Anderson's life, career, and legacy by drawing from 34 cassette tapes of interviews recorded in the 1950s. It's grant season! The American Opera Project has announced that it has been awarded a $270,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to support its Composers and the Voice training program. And friend of the show American Baroque Opera also gets a National Endowment for the Arts grant for their production of Mozart's first opera, Apollo and Hyacinthus, which will star friend of the show Kimon Marat. Go AOP and ABO, get that check! <laughs> the Royal Music Association has announced the winner of the Tippet Medal, a new prize for composition. The inaugural accolade was given to John Caskin for The Shackled King, an opera based on King Lear. In trade news, hashtag Barry Hunk Switcheroo, Florida Grand <laughs> Opera has announced that Hadley Adams will take over the role of Stanley Kowalski in Previn's A Streetcar Named Desire. Adams was already scheduled to sing the lead role of Hawkins Fuller in FGO's production of Greg Spears' Fellow Travelers. He replaces Stephen Labrie, who was joining Il Devo for their tour after the death of Carlos Marin. It's Barry Hunk, not Barry Hunk, by the way. Uh, the Grand Teatro <laughs> del Liceo has announced very a particular. cast change for the Queen of Spades. The company noted that Sondra Rabinovsky will not sing the first performances of the opera. Liana Haratunian and Irina Churidilova will share the performances of the title role. On the disabled list, Opéra de Paris has announced that Joshua Guerrero has withdrawn from the role of Des Grieux in their production of Massenet's Manon. Three tenors will take over the role, Roberto Alagna, Atala Ayan, and friend of the show Benjamin Bernheim. They join soprano friend of the show Eileen Perez, who performs the title role. The Teatro San Carlo has announced a cast update for its upcoming production of Tosca. Jonas Kaufmann will sing the role of Cavaradossi, replacing Piero Preti. And no, I am not reading that backwards. Exit stage right. Barrier-breaking Jamaican violinist Edmund Reed has died at 85. Reed was one of the first black musicians in UK orchestras, performing with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, as well as those of Welsh National Opera, ENO, and the Royal Opera House. He also worked extensively as a recitalist and teacher. Costume designer Christian Gosk has died at the age of 76. Gosk designed for the most elite opera houses in Europe, including costuming singers like Rene Fleming, Anna Netrebko, Angela Georgiou, Anne-Sophie von Otter, and Ruggiero Raimondi. The Teatro Real's former general director, Miguel Muniz, uh, Muniz has died. Muniz, who left, led the company between 2004 and 2012, was devoted to modernizing the theater and was responsible for a number of initiatives, including creating jazz and flamenco festivals and releasing performances on DVD. And on this day, January 17th, in 1671, it was the first performance of Moliere's play Psyche with music by Lully, uh, which is not to be confused by with Lully's opera of the same name. In 1706, it was the birth of American statesman, composer, publisher, and most importantly, inventor of the glass harmonica, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Mozart's motet Exultate Jubilate was performed first on this date in 1773 by the Castrato Vin... Venanzio Rauzzini, who had sung the part of Cecilio in Luchosila the previous year. 1884 saw the first performance of Jules Massenet's opera Manon in Paris, and 1901 saw the first performance of Pietro Mascagni's opera Le Maschere simultaneously in Genoa, Milan, Rome, Turin, and Venice. Happy birthday to Canadian soprano Nancy Argento, born on this day in 1957, and another happy birthday to French soprano Agnès Melon, born in 1958. And that is your two-minute drill.
just heard a clip featuring that most illustrious invention of Benjamin Franklin's <laughs> The Glass Harmonica. Uh, that's featured in the mad scene from Lucia de Lammermoor with Nadine Sierra singing the role of Lucia from a production in Venice with Riccardo Fritta conducting. I mean, with all due respect to, to Benjamin Franklin, like, is there any other opera that has a glass harmonica? Oh, yeah. I was literally about to name some. <laughs> are, are you saying that they, you think they should have done it with the flutes? Is that you don't want Benjamin Franklin to get his day in the sun? I'm, I'm happy for Franklin. Okay, tell me, Weston. Give me an opera with a glass harmonica. Uh, uh, George Benjamin's uh, Written on Skin has a, a glass harmonica very prominently. It's really good. Okay. Um, yeah, Fair. it's great. I love the glass harmonica. Like, if you go back and read, like, contemporary descriptions of glass harmonica when it was first invented, everyone is freaking out about it. They think it's the sound of ghosts. Ladies are fainting left and right. It's a great mesmerized. instrument. Top 10. Okay. Okay. men. Fair enough. So now the Tippet the Tippet Medal. Give me an opera by Michael Tippet. The Midsummer Marriage. <laughs> yeah. Weston didn't know what he was here. talking about there. King, King Lear, famously an opera that Verdi wanted to ad- adapt, and we got all of his other Shakespearean adaptations instead because he couldn't figure out a way to do it. So best of luck to us. Uh... <laughs> that story about the Tippet Award was very white. It was so white that I had to like close my eyes. It was. It was Tippet <laughs> so blindingly. Tippet also wrote King Priam, I think. As well, yeah, I think so. So yeah. I, I, I didn't follow. So Jonas Kaufman is actually replacing someone. I know. When I was looking through, uh, I was just looking through like lists of you know uh, replacements, cast replacements. Yeah. And usually, when you see a picture of Jonas Kaufman, it's like, oh, <laughs> what he's did he drop out, out of now? Right, yeah. yeah. And I clicked it, and then it said, <laughs> and it said he's coming in to replace someone else. I'm like, well, what does this is mean? Is it opposite day? I, Are is you it okay? that like how did he have a hole in his schedule or? <laughs> Is it is really the Omicron Omicron variant Co- that bad that like everybody's losing work and like yeah I'll take it I'll take it sure I was gonna say COVID really has turned everything upside down <laughs> and then there's three tenors replacing Joshua Guerrero I I don't know Joshua Guerrero's work no this is no patch didn't to he him. just sing Macduff in uh, Chicago's I did, production I didn't of... get to see that but I would it's really good pay a lot yeah, he of money. he was good. I would pay a lot of money to hear Benjamin Bernheim sing yeah. sing Degria. Yeah. That is one of the best tenor voices I have ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a movie you can, or like a pay-per-view deal that you can watch. Him with Pretty, Pretty Ende. I'm going to have to do some research after the show. Yeah. There was no audience, though, so it felt very like. And opposite Perez as well, that would be. Mm-hmm. It's a really yeah. great show. Menel is a really great opera. Perform- I mean, it's good for three acts. Day. Yeah. It's good for three acts. <laughs> <laughs> Act four and five acts. Like you know, I, I when I tell people to go that are going to see that opera, I was like leave after the third act. The fourth You'll act is like time. twenty minutes. It's just them playing cards and singing high D's. <laughs> That's all that happens. <laughs> and then she has to go to Louisiana. That death scene is long. It's yeah. really long. <laughs> Even yeah. in a canon of um, long death scenes, that one might yeah. be the longest. I think if you find yourself at the Met, um, you go see three acts of my gnome, then you go to dinner. It's a perfect evening. Ooh. I'm an apologist for act four, but I'm definitely not going to fight you on act five. Okay. <laughs> the, the Tracy Cox story, this surprised me in so many ways. First of all, I know, I do know... Oh, it's very play. on brand for her, so I, don't, I, I wasn't that surprised by it. Here's, here, no, she... No, what, she is always surprising me because she is so outspoken and so powerful. Um, first of all, I was surprised that, that this play has been turned into an opera. Not because it's a bad play, not because it shouldn't. I just... Uh, I, and I know the company, Victory Hall, a little bit just kind of by name, and this seems mm. very, you know, on on brand for them. Um, really? So they, they do, like, kind of weird stuff that this, this is their, this is their what, thing what is. this is their thing is is like adaptations is it like chicago fringe opera <laughs> it is i that i can't speak to but uh now matt matt, matt bowler that is a name all over that you, you knew yeah well i mean tracy cox even says so herself in this interview that like he says the music alone is the reason to see this show uh matt bowler is a singer and matt bowler is also basically he was just in chicago singing in uh mark Adamo's, um, Coming Santa Claus. Yeah. And he's also yeah. been here before. I forget what other show I've seen him in, but he's really good. He did, but... he did Mass at Ravinia. He was oh. one of the one of the featured street singers in that oh, production. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, back to back to Tracy again. It seems like the perfect project for who she is as an artist, who she oh, is yeah. as an activist, and a great match 
for this. We have to get her on the show. We really should. We also have to, we also have to see how she sings Fiat Luigi if she's more of like a <laughs> more of a Nicole Carr or a <laughs> <Yeah>. Kenny. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, COC taking some big steps. This is um, perhaps overdue. I in, yeah. can, in Canada. So I mean, look, land acknowledgement is is critical, important work. And in Canada, like it is the real thing, right? I mean, and they the Canadians. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, team. But the Canadians have been struggling with this for years. I mean, I think this was this is a thing in Canada well before it was a thing in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in Canada, there's a lot about, you know, the uh, um, the oh God, I'm forgetting the name, but the, the, the government sponsored schools, you know, sort of carrying out like, you know, mm-hmm. denativizing of of on mass. I mean, obviously, the U.S. did it, too, but the U.S. did, a you know, is doing has, has definitely the rug. not um, has not yeah. dealt with the outfa- the the legacy of that in the same the same way. Right. But indigenous groups tend to be a little bit more prominent in Canada. There's, a, 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 I think, a little bit more of a mainstream focus on them than in the United States. Um, I will say that, um, and again, you know, this is all coming from uh, the most, you know, colonial looking guy ever. You know, <laughs> I'm very white. Um, but I, I have heard criticisms in recent months of the idea of land acknowledgement as being this sort of like empty gesture you say before some sort of event. You know, this land once belonged to um, this, you know, a nation. Um, and just like moving on as if that like has absolved you somehow. So I think that this extra step of because what they're doing is essentially creating these art projects um, with indigenous artists collaborating and actually creating something uh, on par that you can actually experience along with, I assume, the the opera or, or whatever you're going to see. Something visual, and something permanent, some, something long-lasting. Yeah, long exactly. Lasting. There's a, I believe the first one is a, is a sculpture and there's a video component, I believe, a sound component as well. Um, something that, that is not merely just an acknowledgement, but like raising up of this underserved artistic viewpoint as well, which, uh, I think has a little bit more weight than simply saying it and then moving on with your incredibly European art form. You know what I mean? Well, I'm actually going to just chime in and say that even if it's like an empty, it seems like an empty gesture, it does create a conversation. And like, I've been in the theater Mm -hmm. Or I, you know, I see the old couple and the manlies or someone's like, who is that? You know? So <laughs> exactly. it's just, okay, you know, you don't even know about this thing. So you got to first get people to know that this is a thing before you can start doing mm-hmm. like right, beautiful exactly. interpretation of what this can be artistically. And like, I applaud them, but just do it. Even if it seems empty, just get the conversation started and do it. It takes you nothing. It, it costs you, what, 10 seconds of, you know, yeah. auditorium time. Agree. And, and COC has has been on this path for longer and they are further down that path yeah. either, to their credit. Agreed. Ah, cancellations all over Europe. I don't even know if I can bear to talk about that. Just I mean, what, what else is there anything, to say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am interested to see that some uh, that some European theaters have already announced tentative reopenings, which is nice, and Toledo, Ohio as well. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's definitely, the, the Omicron wave has been much more intense, but it seems to be based on all the science that we know, uh, a lot faster moving. So hopefully things can start happening again. Yes, Oliver. No, I mean, I, I sense that we're wrapping up soon. I just want to say that um, January 17th uh, is a good day to be a um, historically informed soprano specialist like Nancy mm. Argenta and Agus Mamon, except for Yvonne Kenny somehow. It's not her day today. <laughs> No, it's not something in the air. It's just not uh, not going away. <laughs> I'm so glad that you two aren't in the same room because that would be the next TK that we would have. It's all fault. <laughs> Talk about a double fall, am I right? <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Wrapping up the OBS for you this week. Uh, we're going to start with Oliver Camacho. So two friends of the show will be heard on the next Met broadcast this coming Saturday, or if you're listening to this on Friday, tomorrow, um, Charles Castronovo and Lucas Meacham <laughs> uh, sing Rodolfo and Marcello, respectively, in the Met's La Boheme. That's a fantastic two guys for a cast. But they also have Maria Gresta as Mimi and Gabriela Reyes. And I think she is the discovery of this cast. 
Um, she's singing Musetta. She could sing We Me No Problem. She just appeared in Chicago's production of Florencia and the Amazonas, and she stole the show. So I'm looking forward to seeing how she sounds at the Met. Matt Cummings. You know, I'm always checking Spotify for new classical releases, and this week I found that Sandrine Pio, who has been doing this for, like, literally almost as long as I have been alive, she's been making recordings, uh, has a new album of uh, Handel Arias called Enchantress that I was listening to getting ready for the show. I think it's Enchantresses. I think it is, yeah. I I think it's Enchantresses in French. Okay. (laughs) I, you can read anything in French if you want, you know, it just makes it, it a little bit fancy. Maybe I was just searching for, I only read article <laughs> album reviews in the original languages of the singers. Isn't that the joke that it's like chante and enchanted? Never mind. <laughs> it's I a mean, good album. <laughs> it is a good album. She sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm so confused. Weston Williams. Um, my good call this week, uh, I forgot to wear it on the last show, but I did get this lovely Christmas gift. It says, toy, 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 y'all, uh, from the Atlanta <laughs> Opera. And if that ain't me, I don't know what is. Wow. Kudos to Atlanta Opera for doing that. That's pretty swell. I have, Well, my first good call is that it's my wife's birthday on uh, January 7th. Happy birthday, Aww. To her, I have a call call. I don't know if it's a good call or a bad call. Uh, the fam and I on movie night last week, we watched Encanto, which was fine. That's because you're white. I heard all the brown people like it. So Yeah, but very, very wading into that Wading into that Lin-Manuel Miranda discourse with a hot take is George <laughs> Cedarquist. <laughs> it's just, the, the, the music is, to me, not that exciting and not necessarily. Here's what I will say is that the piece really is built like a musical. Like, it is animated and staged and crafted like a piece of musical theater. And that is Mm. kudos to the design team and to the writers and the the directing staff. The music, for me, I did not find that inspiring. So send that hate mail over to... (laughs) That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer, Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Twitter and Instagram, at Opera Box Score. Please help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Again, if you're watching on TDO, Dallas Opera Network, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get the full show. On Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you hit that plus sign. and Or you can just ask Alexa to play Opera Box Score. Email us those hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Send us a voice memo. Get that beer coaster and that lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Matt Cummings. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sing two long trills connected to a descending scale and arpeggiated scale back up, (laughs) nail a cadential trill and stick the landing. We're back with an all new show next week when we look at the ways in which music highlights epic moments in sports history. Plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes and more Vegemite. (laughs) Oh, join us.